Hello and welcome to No Man's Land podcast. Uh, we're here today for a slightly different episode to discuss in depth what's gone wrong with Labour and where we are with the leadership election. Uh, I'm here with Martin Rogers. Hello. And Akash Bond. Hi there. And I'm Steve O'Neill. Um, I, uh, Martin normally does a questioning for us and I'm taking over that matter for the day. And the first question is for Martin. Um, so obviously the RPOD's USP is around the middle ground. Um, so looking at this Labour leadership election, where is the middle ground and is there one we can identify? I, I think there is a middle ground within this Labour leadership contest. I think there's been a sort of curious convergence. You've had Nandy and Thornbury, who I think could conveniently be argued to be on the sort of soft left. Starmer is seen by some as being a bit more towards the right of the party, but has taken a very broad and sort of unifying approach by involving people from Corbyn campaign and people from his sort of policy and campaigns team uh, and getting backing from those sort of figures, but also from involving Corbyn sceptics of people like Labour First. So he's trying to be a sort of unifying figure. Um, and there's also Long Bailey, although Rebecca Long Bailey hasn't really been around long enough for us to say what faction or part of the party she belongs to. She's only been a, year, a member, something like a year before her election as an MP in 2015, despite having said that she voted for Ed Miliband when she applied to become an MP. Although her relationship with the truth at certain matters has been um, not quite watertight. So I think that there's... Um, it's an emerging centre ground that's sort of semi-consensus maybe between all of the leadership candidates. First of all, it seems to me that there's consensus that Labour didn't actually do too badly in the last election. Now, that doesn't have to be that Rebecca Long-Bailey's giving Corbyn 10 out of 10 or endorsing his argument that Labour won the argument. Um, but it's more about not confronting the party with a need to make real change. Now, something, some of the other things we can say everyone is against Brexit, although um, with differing, I suppose, rhetoric and mood music. And they're all in favour of keeping a sort of Corbynite platform on economics. And in, similarly to Brexit, in terms of they all, I think, fair to say, agree on free movement. They're all in similar positions on a sort of value scale that we talk about these days. And they're all, I think, what David Goodhart would call anywhere, at least even if their background, which they're all trying to play up how difficult their backgrounds are, like Monty Python's sketch about Yorkshiremen, they all certainly now adhere to the sort of metropolitan liberalism. So this is in opposition, for example, to a group like Blue Labour, who had a brief flame of interest in them after the election. Blue Labour claim, among various other things, that New Labour and its third-way European followers fail to understand the economics of modern capitalism, which I thought would be fine to leave there, but I've developed a hatred of leaving sound bites just as they are. So I want to add a little bit of explanation. And Blue Labour claim that Social Democrats across the EU have been wedded, wedded to the ordo-liberal orthodoxies of the Maastricht Treaty and the Stability and Growth Pact. So I talked about the leadership candidates thinking broadly nothing's that bad. And I think they're not willing to challenge the party. 
it seems much more about playing to the membership as if they haven't noticed that the old certainties have moved on. This is Corbyn was the main reason for Labour's worst ever election defeat in my eyes. So there was opinion polling just after the election where half of defectors from Labour in the North East cited Corbyn. Labour lost 29 seats in the region. Now I call it Labour's worst ever election defeat because in 1935, when we previously did as badly as this, Labour had never been a majority party of government. Mm. Now, as we speak, it's less than 10 years since there was a Labour majority government. Yeah, I mean, YouGov data or research on this also found that former Labour voters who switched to other parties or, or stayed this time, um, 35% of them cited Jeremy Corbyn or the party leadership as, as the main reason for that. 19% Brexit, 16% perceived competence, and, and, and so on. So, yeah, I think that the data does suggest that a lot of it was about Corbyn. Doesn't that, though, potentially give the... Um, the sort of leftist candidates, if, if that is what, say, Don Bailey can be categorised as a potential excuse that maybe it wasn't the message, it was the messenger. And isn't that potentially a risk for, for the party going forward if, if they take from that that, oh, well, we just need a, you know, a, a, a better um, leftist leader, maybe one that's not tainted with some of the, you know, unfortunate associations that Corbyn's had with <laughs> certain groups around the world. I mean, that's certainly the line that the Corbynites and those sympathetic to Corbyn and his project are pushing. So, for example, the sort of official review by uh, Ian Lavery, among others, says that it's all, it all went fine, it's all, anything that didn't go fine is all someone else's fault. One line that the pro-Corbyn leadership, but contenders and others, outriders and such, are pushing is that Labour's manifesto policies were popular. Now, we've talked about this before, and I've cited the case for that. Now, obviously, many of the people who are Corbyn supporters weren't around in the Labour Party of 2010 to 2015, but all of those who were can tell you that Ed Miliband could make a perfectly legitimate case that his reform, his policies and proposed reforms were individually popular. And they were. They were very popular. Who doesn't want free stuff? And Labour for the last 10 years has basically been a free stuff party. He'll listen to free stuff. But if people don't trust you, if a party is proposing a certain set of reforms and they are not trusted to deliver them, even if people think that they themselves are good things individually or even collectively. People don't reward draft parties who they don't trust to deliver. They don't like politicians making promises and not delivering on them, which kind of fair enough, really. So, I mean, I, I completely accept all that, although... I wonder whether that is using the same interpretation that was used a few years back. So when Blair kind of won, he became credible, won the centre ground. It was always about centre ground. He won very easily. Now we've got the perception of certainly a much more divided country with much more, with more of a value-based sort of politics. And the question for Labour seems to be, and it's probably oversimplifying, you have your sort of more traditional northern heartland with voters who are left on the economy, broadly speaking, 
but more socially conservative, or certainly more socially conservative than their very liberal metropolitan voters in London, which has been where their strength is growing. And one of the reasons Brexit hurt them in the last election was that they fudged it and never did really win either. But aren't they, aren't, isn't whoever has the leadership in a tough position because they've got to decide either go for one or the other, but maybe that's not an option, but they've got to try and keep both. And that looks really hard, where it's easier, seemingly, for the Tories to keep together uh, a socially conservative coalition, a kind of economically responsible coalition, as it happened in the last election. So credibility will surely help Labour, but they've got to ask more questions. How do you get a coalition of people together that's going to actually become a large party or win a majority? I think these things are always completely impossible until someone does them. <laughs> so someone like Matthew Goodwin, the, the professor, academic, will say that it's, um, it's easier for a party of the right to move left on economics than it is a party of the left to move right on culture. So that's why I mentioned about the sort of anywheres and values, positions of, of all of the candidates. Now, someone like Paul Embry has characterised Labour's positions over the last few years as when there's a choice between the uh, Hartlepool-type Labour Party and the Hampstead-type Labour Party, the Labour basically have gone with Hampstead. Now, it's not necessarily to see, not necessarily true, I don't think, to say that all parts of Labour's coalition have collapsed. Certainly, there's been a deflation in some areas, but I think what we've seen is a change, and a change that the Conservatives have been better able to make the most of, which is basically that Labour's heartlands are not Labour's heartlands anymore. Places that would never, ever conceivably been Labour heartlands 30 years ago are now Labour heartlands. These are places with educated, uh, sort of middle and upper middle class professionals, degree holders, um, aspirational people. These are now the Labour's sort of core vote and, and heartland. So, yeah, well, what was Labour's only gain in this election in 2019? Was, um, was Putney. Putney, indeed. Not no. Absolutely ticks those boxes that you were just listing there. Yeah, and meanwhile, not only heartlands in England, but Labour has completely lost Scotland. And Wales. Wales is, is, is a genuine battle now between mm. Labour and Conservatives. But Scotland is, is pretty much gone as far as Labour's concerned. And exactly. For decades, one of their one of their oh. lands and the basis of any majority that they, they might aspire to create in the future. And I think one of the reasons it's so um, politics has changed because before the election, obviously there wasn't a majority, but not only has the Tory government now got a big majority, but Labour has is in this, it should be at least, I don't think it really is, but it should be in a crisis to the very depth of its core, that its core vote has abandoned it in droves, places that have never barely cast a vote for the Tories, now have 10,000 seat majorities. And it doesn't to me seem like they're doing enough thinking around and are challenging around what what comes next? So I, I agree, not Martin. And I noticed actually that, um, to my surprise, lots of the candidates are actually have a lot of praise for Jeremy Corbyn. And I wonder why why they're doing that. Is that just politeness? There's something more to it than I think there, there are several sort of questions around here. Now, 
Obviously, first is, have they actually learned anything? Are they lying? Or are they just playing for the membership? Now, no one really knows who the membership is because of so many people have recently joined or potentially rejoined. Um, a lot of them are not taking any chances. So they're thinking the membership is still very pro-Corbyn, so we're going to be pro-Corbyn. Now, um, there's a thing about access to contact details which candidates aren't allowed until a certain point, but uh, if you're in momentum and have the backing of momentum, then you can have the access to the membership and contact details of the, of the momentum, which because of course momentum is a party within a party and not the Labour Party itself. But there's also a lot about the sort of the kind of thing, what is Labour for? What is it about? And Cor Corbynism marked a bit of a break with traditional Labour, not just Blair Labour, but the constitution of the Labour Party, that the job of the Labour Party is to have a presence in Parliament, part of the, the sort of one of the clauses of the constitution. Long Bailey instead has talked about picking a fight with the establishment. And there's also been pressure from the likes of John McDonald, some of the media outriders, outriders about being an opposition movement, a mass movement, or a sense of oppositionality, which comes from uh, Grace Blakely, from, who's one of the media outriders. Now, these are all being about a protest movement, not having to make the difficult decisions and the difficult choices of being in government, or indeed having to appeal, appeal to people who disagree with you, which has not been a strength of the Corbynite movement. But they're all making very sort of pro-Corbyn noises. For example, recently, when asked whether privatisation had ever brought any benefits, all of them said no. Lisa Nandy at least had the decency to say no, but giving just the slightest little bit of nuance to uh, the debate. However, Nandy has also talked about Corbyn being the first break in 40 years of Thatcherite economics, i.e. saying that the government that brought in the minimum wage and Shawstar and investment unparalleled in history in public services was Thatcherite, which um, I hope that she knows that that's wrong and she's just being a politician and playing to the crowd. But so what we've got is that Starmer's running as a sort of competence candidate. Nandy I've characterised as a populist candidate in that she's talking about the sort of forgotten people left behind towns uh, is her thing. However, the polls that James Johnson in the Times reports on a focus group in Birmingham, which felt Starmer is not different enough. He was accused of being someone you could see presenting in a boardroom and was seen as looking down on people. Now, that could be related to Brexit. This focus group felt, however, that Labour should move back to the middle ground rather than stay radical. So, I'm not sure how well that will go down with the Corbynites, but I personally would nail my colours to the mask, and I say that I disagree. In the old days, competent beat things like being different enough. I don't know if that still holds, but it is possible that it would. And then I just want to go back to something about this. As Embry again has noted, Nandy is another person who signed up to this sort of metropolitan liberalism of 
European integration and free movement. She's a bit of a curious case because she's made an awful lot of noises about sort of respecting the result of the referendum and implementing Brexit, but has voted against it. And her voting record is very much one of those who you would characterise as a sort of remainer in chief. So I think basically the problem is none of the contenders are seeking to tell the party the hard truth. They're either overcautious or complacent in thinking that not being Corbyn will enough, be enough next time, which in fairness, it might. But there is also a complacency about having bottomed out. It's not necessarily the case. It could still get worse. Lots of former safe seats are now marginals. To me, Labour are now a middle class, even upper middle class sort of professional party. They're unlikely to lose too much of that new core vote, but to get anywhere, they might need to find more than just this new core vote. And as someone said to me today, it might possibly be worth listening to someone who has won a few elections in their time. One, Tony Blair might have something to add to this. But unfortunately, to the Corbynites especially, he is lower than low. He is an untouchable, which I think says a great deal about their priorities. Um, I want to dig down the Corbynism thing a bit, because we sort of talk about Corbyn and Corbynism, though we don't know what it means. But um, to me, and I've seen uh, reports of this come out of focus groups, is it's, there's, there's, a, there's the Corbyn policy platform that seems to be so far unchallenged in the leadership race. Um, but the other thing is the way of doing politics, kind of old hard left politics, deselections, uh, talk of Seamus Mill briefing journalists against members of the Shadow Cabinet, this kind of stuff. And something that I have uh, read and reported in other focus groups is that people just thought with that kind of stuff and with the anti-Semitism stuff, which is, I think, very disturbing, that um, they thought this group of people just didn't look like a good sort of people. It's very simple. So, like that. So, is it, is it a case of um, the kind of politics Corbyn did, or was it the party platform, or and can we can we tell? I think that's a, actually a really good point, and something that isn't really talked about, I think, enough. In terms of an, an, what is Corbyn Corbynite policy? Well, on economics, it has been at some point early to mid nineties Labour. I've, I sat through a session with John McDonnell where I thought if, if you'd have told me that that was Gordon Brown in 1994 saying them words, you wouldn't have disagreed. So there's a sort of traditional European, social, Northern European social democrat thing going on. There's also like good old fashioned sort of state control, not just state intervention, but it's about control, very much about control. That's where a lot of these sort of nationalisations and things come from. Uh, some of it is inspired by Venezuela. Um, so they've kind of mixed and matched a little bit of those, depending on who they're talking to. If, they, if John McDonnell is doing his bank, friendly bank manager act, um, and then the outriders can go, well, what are you, you know, what are you talking about that he's a radical? He's just social democracy like they have in, in Europe. And of course, if they're talking to one of their marches, then they're saying, you know, we're radical, we're going to smash the state. And it's that radicalism, that smashing the state and crushing opposition, uh, that, you're right, has put a lot of people off. And I mean, for some people, anti-Semitism was a lie that once crossed and embraced fully by the leadership and their outriders, that was a lie. For other people, it was the bullying, the 
uh, underhand tactics that try to undermine people. You know, you go to meetings and you see people bullying and ganging up on each other. You see it online with the pylons, with uh, local councillors or local sort of officers elected sort of officers within the Labour Party, like local membership officer, and all of them piling on, going, give me the data, give me the data, not realising that doing so is actually breaking the law. You can't just give people data, or you have to set a balanced budget, you have to, by law, have your accounts audited and be able to balance the books, you know, attacking people who try to do these things. And actually, I think it's probably the combination of everything. And they're very used to being around a small number of people who will agree with each other. When they're challenged, they've got very thin skins, perhaps because they're so used to just being surrounded by people with a, everyone agrees with each other largely. Yeah. I mean, for me, another distinctive aspect of the, the, the sort of style of politics um, of the Corbyn-led party was it had to be a kind of extra parliamentary movement kind of at its core because he always had so little support within the parliamentary party. Mm. I mean, you know, what was it? 80% of uh, Labour MPs voted no confidence in him. And he wrote that out because of the support he had among the wider, the wider membership. And it was always a very odd position to be in. But I guess it kind of worked okay because in opposition, you know, as long as you oppose mostly what the government does, you can you can unite around that. It's quite hard to imagine how it would have worked in government mm. um, to have a prime minister uh, whom 80% of his party colleagues did not support. Um, and talking about the Labour leadership uh, contenders now, um, I mean, it's clear from the nominations that it is Keir Starmer who has the the support of, of the, I think, maybe not a full clear majority, but definitely the largest number of MPs um, way ahead of, of Long Bailey or, or Nandi. Um, so, you know, we may end up with, with a similar situation if Rebecca Long Bailey, for example, does come through and win it based on the wider membership and unit, union endorsements. Well, they've certainly been trying to change the makeup of the Labour Parliament, Parliamentary Labour Party, which, as I'm sure, Henry leadership would be. I think you're right, but they've always been quite disdainful of the parliamentary process. And you had, again, Grace Blakely talking recently about the, the contempt with which she, I, she said her, you know, herself, but meaning the Corbynites and the Corbynite allies, they, they hold basically parliamentary process and contempt has got no legitimacy because they're not in charge. Why would you believe in something that doesn't give you what you want when you're used to always getting what you want? So I think, but I think it's a very good point that these people honestly seem to see themselves as um, a proto, a mass movement, a protest movement, or and maybe I'm being a little bit old-fashioned and British about this. A quite scary thing when you have a sort of radical rampaging government backed up by bullies on social media and people with pitchforks in the street, which that's not too far. I mean, it's not such a um, stretch. I know it seems extreme, but it's not such a stretch to imagine these people actually sort of turning into sort of um, 
burning torches and flaming sort of pitchforks at people. I mean, and actually something that I, I think, again, they talk, they talk about the style of politics. Uh, Diane Abbott, who would have been Home Secretary if Labour had won the election, said of Chairman Mao, he did more good than bad in parts. Seamus Mill, the head of communications of the leader of the opposition, is a known Stalinist who wrote in the Guardian, in the Guardian, how good Stalin was and how he's misunderstood. And I think in the same way that anti-Semitism seems to have been given a bit of a free pass, in the same way that I'm sure it wouldn't have, people wouldn't have been as relaxed about anti-Semitism if it had been another uh, minority. Dictators and mur murderous dictators and genocidal maniacs seem to get a bit of a free pass if they're supported by the left. You know, can you imagine if the editor of the, I can't remember exactly what Milne's position was at the Guardian, a very senior member of the, uh, the Telegraph, say, for example, was a vocal fan of Hitler and then went to work for a conservative leader. The Labour Party and the Labour movement and the left would be outraged. Or if the Shadow Home Secretary had a history of saying that Pinochet, he did more good than bad on balance. Or the, as John McDonnell and other members of the Labour Party do, marching in front of banners to Stalin and other genocidal dictators, and imagine how the left would react if conservative, prominent conservative politicians gave speeches in front of banners of Goebbels and Heinrich. I do think there is an incredible hypocrisy in the style of politics of the Corbyn like, left that is not talked about enough and is not, has the sort of light, disinfecting light on it that it should. What a lot of people, I think, you know, I'm going to try and do a little bit of an impression of a Corbynista here, and you know that I'm, I'm a, I'm a sort of, um, card-carrying centrist, so um, this is not my view, but I think a lot of people would say that, yes, you might not appoint certain things, Seamus Milne written and other things that are unsavoury, but that the majority of the left, the broad left movement, is actually about reversing Thatcherism. And yes, there are some things you can point to, and I'm sure there's some pretty unsavoury things you can point to in the Conservative Party, and you certainly can when you get into the UK for some Brexit Party people. Um, but that's a, that's distracting. So they, they, they would say that, yes, there's these things, but really that we're really about changing the economic model. Uh, and what they felt were, the when, when they um, uh, perhaps got it wrong with anti-Semitism and, and defended things they shouldn't have defended, they thought it was people having a against that kind of that kind of view. They thought they were defending the kind of let's change the economy view. That's, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. And it's, we've, we've touched, I think, in the past on the idea of radical centrism. So let's embrace that radicalism. And it's certainly true to look at, you know, there are many measures in which the UK should not be doing as well, is not doing as well as it should be. And there's a lot of lies out there that um, are not as happy and prosperous as they should be. This is by no means to defend an economic model uh, that has led to sort of misery and uh, unemployment and zero hours contracts. And I went to buy home town where I grew up the other day, as I do quite a lot, and the centre of town is devastated. Boarded up shops, 
grimy, dirty, it's horrible. So this is not a sort of plea to maintain things as they are. But given that the new Corbyn on backbencher Zara Sultana, Sarah Sultana, um, has said that basically the new Labour was Thatcherite, that there was an unbroken line of Thatcherism and leasing them, the leadership contender, possible next leader of the Labour Party, said that there's been um, sort of an unbroken line of Thatcherite economics until Corbyn came along. So what I asked them, what is Thatcherite and non-Thatcherite economics? If the minimum wage, short start, the London challenge, all of the sort of investments in public services under new labour, if that wasn't enough, then what is enough? Where is that line? So I think there's certainly a thoughtful, soft left approach to this, but I think that the Corbynite style of politics precludes a sort of thoughtful, measured approach, which is not to say that only Corbynism can be radical and only Corbynism is radical. You can be radical from wherever you want it, but having lots of change, that's what I think radical really means, but um, to do it in a different way that is sort of when um, when we met Ian Mulhern, he talked about evidence-based and actually being able to balance the books. So in order to do all of these things, you need to pay for them. And one of the great frustrations on a sort of politics and rhetoric side with Corbyn on Corbyn period for me was the uh, was the refusal to tell the truth about tax. If we want a generous, well-funded welfare state, we can pay, we have to pay for it. And that's not just the rich, whoever they may be in the sort of easy rhetorical device, but a, an organisation, a movement like a Corbyn-led Labour Party could have made the case for, you want it, you pay for it. You and me and normal people, people on average incomes, median incomes, are going to have to pay a little bit more. And yeah, we're going to do also some things around inheritance tax. We're going to do something around land tax. We're going to get rid of, or maybe even get rid of something like council tax, which is very regressive. And I just think that rather than being honest with people and saying that if we want to Scandinavian levels of provision, we will have to pay Scandinavian levels of taxation, there was the, the far left sort of slide, which to be honest, a lot of the left is guilty of, not just the far left, into sort of bash the rich. It's rhetorically easy and they think it's short-term political capital. When actually, they, if they wanted to really change politics, put some honesty into it. Yeah, I mean, the left of the Labour Party has, for a long, long time, um, had a serious problem with recognising the limits of what the British people will vote for in terms of higher taxation, expanded state role um, in, in running the economy and so on. I mean, there's a, there was a quote I saw recently on Twitter from Tony Benn, um, you know, great man in many ways, but obviously from that sort of tradition um, and, and his commentary on the 1983 election results 
Um, a great victory for socialism. Indeed, and like emphasizing, oh yes, we got 10 million or whatever number it was, people to vote for a socialist platform. And it was like, okay, but <laughs> you were absolutely decimated because millions more people voted voted for the, for the Conservatives. And it's, it's, there's a similar refusal to, to face facts now. You know, setting aside was any of what Labour was proposing actually credible or affordable and to be honest, a lot of it wasn't, or certainly all of it at one time wasn't. Um, but even if you know, even if even if you thought it all could be done, the fact is the British people have never, um, or at least not for decades, shown willingness to vote for um, hard left manifestos like that. I would and, right. I think there's an argument to be made around whether the '83 manifesto was a, a hard left. It was really more of a sort of bulked up soft left. Manifesto without wanting to get into the splitting hairs of uh, Labour's particular suicide history. Well, I would have to go back to it. I do, I do remember. I do remember reading it at, uni- at university. But didn't they have a proposal for nationalised dog farms or something like that? <laughs> was one of the famous examples. But the other thing I was going to say um, about the response to 2019 that I've seen among some, yeah, some of these media. Um, outriders, as you, as, you, as you described them with the Corbyn project, is they are, they are highlighting 2017, um, the 2017 election result, which of course was a lot closer than people expected, um, as evidence that maybe there is an appetite there for a Corbyn kind of um, agenda. And it was only the specific circumstances of December 19, namely people being sick to death of, of the Brexit never-ending story that led to the scale of this defeat. Um, so I think I think it's a flawed argument. I mean, Labour didn't win in 2017, they did get closer. Um, but that is something I've, I've heard quite a few people make. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I, I think that all polling says the opposite. I think that implies that when people were asked why they voted and they said, because Labour under Corbyn is awful. It's, I think, a bit of a leap of faith to hear that and think it's because they loved Labour but Brexit. So when people were asked, why, why did you defect from the Labour Party? Was it Labour uh, under Corbyn? Was it Brexit? And they all said Labour under Corbyn. For those people to refuse to hear that and instead hear Brexit, I think, is delusion of the same level of um, Richard Bergen claiming that basically Labour won and everything's fine because Labour got more votes than in the 2005 election, 15 years before when the population has increased quite a lot in 15 years. I think it's delusion and it implies that the people, when asked what motivated their vote, they don't know what they're saying. And I think that's incredibly patronising as well. Just, um, I'm going to carry on my devil's advocate, but like roll back to a few weeks before the election, there was a general acceptance that the public had moved to the left on the economy and wanted more intervention. That's why Boris Johnson was talking about any austerity, even if uh, we discussed, perhaps he's not doing it fully in practice. Um, and we sort of we sort of flipped now and gone. Well, actually, the public won 
you know, the sort of more than neoliberal consensus stuff. I'm not sure we really know. I'm not sure we can really disentangle all these things. And for example, we've mentioned some of the things about anti-Semitism, about Corbyn's foreign policy, his personality. Um, there's a whole package there. And so when someone says in the polls we're talking about, oh, it was Corbyn more than Brexit, there's a lot entangled up with Corbyn. Um, and it's not impossible there's a bunch of that manifesto, even though I say this as a centrist who probably would put red line through certain bits of it, um, that the wasn't popular in that manifesto. So um, I, do, I do think they have got more than just a biased argument to, to No, I, I, I certainly agree that I, I, think, I think the difference between maybe the Corbyn argument, and this might be an unfair characterization, and if it is, I apologize, that the sort of there is a great latent socialist um, public out there waiting to just sort of be awoken when there is a sort of sufficient thicker head movement, whatever. My argument is that you need to make the argument. People can be persuaded of all sorts of things. And they can change their minds relatively quickly. Who would have thought ten years ago that we would have left the European Union? It would have been insane. People can be persuaded to accept quite radical change if the argument is made for it. And so I think this comes back to the sort of style of politics argument. If you can be trusted to deliver, if a politician can be trusted to deliver something, so for example, let's say that Keir Starmer wins the Labour leadership and it takes a, let's say, broadly soft left approach, a sort of beefed up millibandism that he's seen as maybe not the most articulate and charismatic, but trustworthy, competent and able with a, let's call it a split the difference type approach, some of the bits of Corbynism and some of the Corbynite, or at least people who served in the shadow cabinet say under Corbyn, but then maybe some people from the sort of new Labour era. I think it's entirely possible that you could win that election on the basis of trust, especially if Brexit goes, let's say, wrong. Imagine that at the end of this year, there's a sort of no deal, effectively a no deal outcome, no free trade agreement, no sort of future relationship agreed. I think it's certainly not impossible that the reputation for competence can swap round sort of quite quickly and we could end up in quite a different position from where we are. Yeah, I mean, they'd need a huge swing. It would take an unprecedented swing. Like, it isn't, no, I believe no one has ever won sufficient seats ever in any general election to get from Labour, Labour from where it is now to a majority of one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think realistically, it would be an enormous shock um, if, yeah, if, 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 if they could get close to victory next time. It's much more about getting within striking distance for five years after that. Mm. Um, so I think Labour, yeah, realistically, we're talking sort of nine, nine, ten years um, minimum in opposition. But I agree to things. Things can dramatically change sometimes, occasionally. But uh, yeah, that would be quite a shock. I mean, I suppose that the, the one thing you could say in, in support of that is um, a lot of those, you know, traditionally safe Labour seats in the North and Midlands that went conservative this time, um, there is a sense that, you know, as, 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 as the phrase goes in the sort of um, borrowed votes, you know, are they really 
do, do those people now see themselves as conservative voters um, or did they just vote conservative on this one occasion for specific reasons, whether it was dislike of Corbyn um, or, you know, Brexit or, or a combination of those things, probably. Um, so are they quite soft um, conservative seats now that, that could be won back? But even then, even then, they've got big problems Labour, they've got problems in Scotland, as we said, and elsewhere. I'm going to say, I'm going to be contrary and disagree a little bit, because while I think that um, Labour winning a, you know, a stonky majority themselves is unlikely, the, the normal has been small majorities in hung parliaments other than this one election that did seem quite unusual. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're back to hung parliament territory. It would be impossible to think Labour might either have the possibility of a coalition or something next time. Voters switch a lot more. We've seen that recently. The seats the Tories are looking to hold is a very new coalition for them. We could well get a recession due to global events and due to a bit of a bump, bumpy road with Brexit. It's not that unlikely that the next election looks quite different. A lot probably depends on who the next Labour leader is and are they able to have a better uh, message and strategy than Corbyn. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to No Man's Land. Do please uh, share our podcast widely. We uh, really appreciate uh, really appreciate that. And uh, we're back with another episode soon.